0: Okay, just a reminder, we have men's prayer breakfast Saturday morning at 7.30, so be here for a great breakfast and a good time of discussion. And then on Sunday, we have our uh, annual congregational meeting where we inform the congregation, give a report on a lot of things that have happened in the last year. And there are several things, especially in the Dean Bible Ministries report, that will be very interesting for people, I think. And then next week's a busy week. We, I'll start on Tuesday night. and Tuesday night, I will give some also some uh, basic etiquette for going to visit a synagogue for Shabbat service. Uh, nothing extraordinary, just a reminder of some basic good manners in somebody else's house. But usually these, when, when we went to when I went to that encounter event. With Friends of Israel back at the end of August up in New Jersey, we went to three different synagogues, so we had our little list of basic uh, protocol things to follow make sure you uh, what your dos and don'ts were in visiting somebody else 's house nothing nothing that most of us weren't already familiar with but i 'll cover some of that and my message on next Tuesday night. Then um, on Friday night, we'll go to uh, Bethlehem for the Shabbat service. I just happened to be over there for an APAC event yesterday, and uh, so the rabbi over there is real excited that we've got almost 50 people going, so that's, that's exciting. And I, I've said this several times, I don't want to bore you, but it's, the Jewish community really feels, especially with the administration that we've got, for lack of a Better word, I'll call it an administration, but um, they 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 just feel the 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 negatives coming out of Washington, and they just are so pleased to and just excited. And every time I go with the Jewish group, they're just so excited about um, the support they have from the Christian community, and that is a unique thing in their history, really, when you consider the centuries of Christian anti-Semitism, which will be not Christian anti-Semitism, but the rise of anti-Semitism in the last um, couple of years that we've seen, especially in the last six months since October 7th. That'll be Olivier Melnick on Wednesday night, which is not a normal time for us, at 7.30, and then Thursday night with Yoram Edinger and don't. Uh, Four weeks from today, the Chafer Conference will be over. It's coming. That bright light you see is the engine at the end of the tunnel, and it's coming fast. So we've got a lot to do, and so there's a need for help, need for some who can uh, pick folks up at the airport, transportation. We don't do a whole lot, but for the keynote speakers, We try to pick them up and provide for their transportation and then a few other things just back and forth to the hotel. So we need some volunteers for that. That covers that. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So before we be open up God's word this evening, let's make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, which means that in silent prayer, just admit or acknowledge sins to the Lord, and instantly we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. And that's just the wonderful grace of God that we have forgiveness. And there are so many people in this world who haven't a clue what forgiveness is and they're burdened with guilt and they don't know where to get rid of it. And yet Christ is paid for for every sin. It's the greatness of the grace gospel. So let's bow our heads together and then after a few moments of silent prayer I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have a relationship with you. You've created us to have a relationship with you. You have made us as human beings in your image and likeness for that very purpose, to have a relationship with you, to grow to intimacy with you. And yet sin stands in the way. And because of Adam's sin, we all were born in spiritual death. But by your grace, we have been given new life. And we have been born again. And so, Father, we're thankful that we have this new life in Christ. And we pray that we might be mindful that so many need to hear that gospel. And that's part of our commission as, and part of our calling as those who are members of the body of Christ, the church. So, Father, keep us mindful of that and help us to understand the clarity of the gospel and the confusion that many people have. And as we study in Philippians 3, we get a great understanding of what justification is, and it's not by works, but it's by grace through faith. So, Father, thank you for this, and we pray you'll open our eyes to the truth of your word tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we're getting up on a section here where we're going to go through a little bit of Paul's testimony. And uh, just by saying that, it reminded me I've been reading a book on Jewish evangelism, and the guy makes some statements about how important it is to be able to express your testimony to those who are unbelievers, just tell them how you came to be saved, and to be able to do it in uh, 30 seconds or less. And he worked on his for a while. He talked to, and and he got it down. And uh, he said, I've even been able um, one time he was stopped at a stoplight. There was a car next to him. He and this guy was is a messianic Jew. And he could tell the guy next to him was Jewish and there was something the guy was pointing out on his car, so he rolled his window down. I caught that phrase in the book. Did you catch it? If you're if you're past a, if you're younger than a certain age, you don't know what it means to roll your window down. You know, you pull up to somebody, you do this. You know, most people born since about the mid seventies don't know what this means. They might know what this means, but they don't know what that means. Okay, so aside from that side side trip, um, he was able to give his testimony in 15 seconds before the light turned red. Can you do that? So that was really important, and and, it tur- and so he didn't know what the result of that was, but he was just uh, expressing that. I think I read this true three days ago. I think the guy, it was obvious it he was obviously Jewish because the guy in the other car was Hasidic, and so he had his hat on and everything. So anyway, you should have a testimony. You should be able to tell people why you're so glad that you've been forgiven and that you have joy in your life and you have stability and happiness because you trusted Christ as Savior. And that's important, how you communicate that to people and what the circumstances were. And a testimony is not always, you know, I was sinking deep in sin, having a wonderful time. No, it is telling people about how no matter what your situation was, I mean, I was a horrible sinner when I was six years old. That's just not going to happen. You just have to talk about how wonderful it was to always know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. So that's important. Well, this is Paul's testimony. We're going to go through that tonight. That's why I called the lesson Paul's past. So what we have looked at is the theme and the structure of Philippians. Going back to the opening part of the main body of the epistle, which goes from 126 down through 4, 9, that's the main body. And the first part, going down to verse 25 or 26, is, uh, excuse me, going down to 26, 27 starts the main body. Uh, down to 26 is your opening introduction, highlighting some of the themes that are in the body of the letter, and then those are reiterated when we get to the conclusion. Uh, so this is well-structured in the first part. There's an emphasis on, on unity. That goes from... Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, down through the end of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, it's the idea of standing fast. Uh, Philippians one twenty-eight, Paul says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries. I wonder how many people today in certain jobs and in certain places are just, well, I'm just not going to worry about what happened. I'm not going to tell anybody I'm a Christian or that I I believe in Jesus because with all the woke stuff going on and all of the cancel culture stuff going on, I'm just not going to tell anybody. And so they're terrified. They're not standing fast for the truth. And um, they, it may be a problem with their with their family. Who knows what it is? But there are times when people just are fearful of standing fast. And so we have to stand fast and be willing to make, just make comments. You know, don't act like God's not part of your life. You don't have to be in their face with the gospel or anything, but you can just say, um, uh, in fact, I was replying to an email today and I said, isn't it wonderful? I just love it when God's plan comes together. You know, that's not any in-your-face throwing Bible verses or anything, but it's just letting people know you're going to talk about God and God's truth and you're not going to be uh, backing off from it. And that doesn't mean it's got to be obnoxious or in-your-face or anything more than just a simple statement. So in chapter 3, we've seen that the focus is on standing firm against error, and the first error that he addresses is the error error of the Judaizers, and these were Jews, Jewish background believers probably, that were now adding human works from the Mosaic law to, uh, uh, to observe, to justification and or to spiritual growth. And we've talked about that to some degree already. So we've con- gone through verse 1, finally, my brethren, Rejoice in the Lord. See, when you feel like you're in a conflict situation, you need to be reminded that you're to rejoice in the Lord and not be worried about how people are going to react or respond to you. My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you, in other words, to be repetitious, is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Those three phrases all are describing the Judaizers, especially when you get to that word mutilation, because that is a term that Paul is using in a very nasty way to describe their emphasis on the importance of circumcision. And circumcision is not and never was, as we study, part of salvation are part of sanctification. It was part, initially, it's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and so it indicated that you were Jewish, and that would still be true for anybody who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The males should be circumcised on the eighth day. That goes back to that time. Uh, It's not for salvation. It's because they they are in that Abrahamic covenant directly, as descendants of Abraham, and then it's it's given in the Mosaic Law, and that's what's happened is they're taking the Mosaic Law uh, mandate on circumcision to be uh, ne- what's necessary for either justification or salvation. They were probably also emphasizing the, the Shabbat. We'll talk a little bit about Pharisees, and that there's a lot there, and I'm just trying to give you just kind of an overview. But we saw this in a couple of the quotes I had when we went through the doctrine of, uh, of circumcision that the, the emphasis in, Pharisei- in in the Pharisaical rabbinicalism, and I'm using that term to emphasize that what is known as rabbinical theology today has its roots in what was done at the Council of Yomnia. It's spelled like Jomnia, but in the Hebrew it's with a Y. Uh, which is a town to the south of Tel Aviv. And there was a meeting there held by the survivors of the Jewish revolt um, under uh, the the leadership of several rabbis. And that is where they restructured Judaism for the post-Temple period. And they were all from the Pharisaical, uh, Pharisaical party. So that is that's, that's the roots of modern Judaism is It, it is really comes out of the Pharisaical theology. So their confidence as as Paul says at the end of verse three, he says, uh, "We in verse three, he says, "We as the, talking about believers, are the circumcision because it's spiritual circumcision. I went through the passages in Deuteronomy. Uh, and other places in the, uh, in the prophets talking about a circumcision of the heart, that was there in the Old Testament. And that's what physical circumcision was, just an external right to picture what was necessary in salvation, and that is a circumcision of the heart. And that has to do with being spiritually set apart to God because of salvation and the imputation of righteousness. So Paul defines that. Who are we as the circumcision? Number one, we worship God in the spirit. Number two, we rejoice in Christ Jesus. And number three, we have no confidence in the flesh. Confidence in the flesh, meaning uh, initially in context, we're not putting confidence in the removal of the flesh in circumcision. But more broadly, we're not putting confidence in anything we do as human beings based on uh, ritual or following any uh, external works of righteousness. And so he says, we have no confidence in the flesh, and then goes right into the rest of the sentence, which is in verse 4, though I also, see, he says, he's going to give himself as an example. That they are coming along and boasting about what they have done in terms of the fact that they've been circumcised and probably some other rituals as well. And he's going to counter them and saying, Look, if I could put, if anyone could get to heaven through confidence in the flesh, confidence in obeying the Mosaic law, confidence in ritual righteousness, he said, It would be me. I can out. Gun, all of you, all day long. I marked every box. I checked off every requirement that was possible, and it was nothing. In fact, when we get down uh, to verse uh, 8, when he says that I uh, count, count all of those things as rubbish, that's the Greek word skubala, which means basically Manure. And you can use any other synonym of that that you like. So that he just—he's devastating them. He's telling them all this work that you've done isn't worth anything at all. And so he says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have the confidence in the flesh, I more so. See, he is just simply stating the foundation for his his argument, and then he's going to tell us why he has reason to put confidence in the flesh more than anyone else. And he is saying that as far as ceremonial ritual advantages or hereditary advantages, none of that has any saving value whatsoever. None of it is salvific. And in contrary, he's going to say that if that were the case, then he, even more than the Judaizers, would be entitled to salvation. But he's he's impl- implying that also that if you are relying on that, even one-tenth of one percent, it invalidates your faith because what you're doing is you're coming to the cross not with faith alone in Christ alone, but in faith plus works and trusting not on, not in Christ alone, but you're trusting in ritual, in works, even if that just sort of a a footnote in your thinking. So that's what that phrase means, faith alone, not faith plus anything, and Christ alone, not Christ plus anything. It is, that's the gospel. Jesus paid it all, period. I'm not relying on anything else but the finished work of Christ, which is absolutely sufficient. So this word is repeated twice. It is the word from patho, uh, which means confidence. It can mean faith. It means trust. And so the first time it is used when he says, though I also might have confidence, this is a um, just the noun form, that I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence, and there it's a perfect tense participle, which means completed action. So what he's trying to say is if anyone thinks that he may have already uh, 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 been persuaded or trusted or have confidence in the flesh, if you think that already, I I can beat you to that game. So then he's going to be describing it and so he comes to a description in verse 5 he says circumcised the eighth day of the stock of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of the hebrews concerning the law a pharisee and so what he is going to do is count off take off he checks all the boxes And then he says in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And that concludes that sentence. So we're going to start here with verse 5, and we're going to start talking about Paul and a little background on the apostle Paul. He says he was circumcised the eighth day, which means that when he was born, his parents were observant, uh, Pharisees. That would be his, his his family tradition. was, And we'll have to talk about what Pharisees were in a little bit. And so he would have been circumcised according to the Mosaic law. And this is in Leviticus 12.3. It was on the eighth day. So he did it precisely. Now, I think I had a slide last week where I inadvertently put week instead of day, and that would be way too long, but we got that corrected. So that's all fixed. Um, it's the eighth day. of the, And so he's talking about doing this precisely according to these instructions given to Abraham. So his parents were obedient. Now, the next thing that he says is of the stock of Israel. Now, what does he mean by that? He means that he can trace his lineage back And there's no mixture with Gentiles or pagans in his genealogy going all the way back to Jacob and then uh, Isaac and then Abraham so that he can say that he is a direct descendant and there hasn't been any, uh, any mixture in the background. And a lot of people in Israel, even today, you meet a lot of people who are Jewish, and they have a certain amount of, of Gentile mixture in their heritage. And it may be for any number of reasons, but there's probably very few today who could even make that claim. I was just recently told that there was a lady who died about maybe seven or eight years ago, and she was the last descendant of a family who could trace their heritage. She lived somewhere in Galilee that could trace her heritage all the way back to the period in the first temple period, probably before the time of Christ. And so there, that family had always lived there in that, in that area in Galilee. So people come along. They think all the Jews were scattered, but that's not true. There has always been a Jewish presence in the land of Israel. And today, especially with a lot of the stuff that you hear, um, there's a lot of um, fake news, obviously. But the Jews did not come just in the last hundred years or 120 years. There were all, all there was always a Jewish presence. Uh, a Jewish presence in the land, and there are records that document that. But then you have to flip the question and find out, well, are there, do these Arabs, because that's what the Palestinians are. Uh, there's really no, that was, a, that was a term that came into existence after the second Jewish revolt in 135. Um, there was the Bar Kokhba revolt, and he was, he was a false messiah. And after that, Hadrian, who was the Roman emperor, was so angry with the Jews and with Christians and all this other religion that he, when he brought his armies in, and and I've read that as many as 900,000 Jews were slaughtered by the Romans in that second revolt. That they they he then leveled whatever was on the sites of of. Uh, where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, the site of the crucifixion, he leveled what was left of the temple on the Temple Mount, built a temple to Jupiter there, built a temple, I think, to Aphrodite, was on the site of the Holy Sepulchre, and built another temple on the in Bethlehem on the site of where Christians were coming to venerate the birthplace of, of Jesus. And so uh, Hadrian renamed... Jerusalem, Aeoli Capitolina, Uh, Capitolina or Aeoli was a family name and Capitolina is now the capital for his family, puts his family name on it. And then he, so he's obliterated all, all of the sites. He puts a new name on Jerusalem and no Jews can live there. And he puts a new name on the country, Palestina. And some people think that this has its ultimate origin. It was a Greek word. It has its ultimate origin going back to the Philistines. But there's an alternate view I kind of like. I haven't had the time to research all of it. But the alternate view was that the Greek verb palaio means a wrestler. Now, Jacob was a wrestler. He wrestled with God, Remember? And so that would be the etymological root of the name as the land of the wrestler. So I'm not sure which it is, but the word up until the mid-60s was a word that described Jews. There was a Palestinian brigade in the British Army in World War II. So it was not applied to the Arabs living there until Arafat co-opted it in in the 60s. So it really doesn't belong to them. They're Arabs, but they're not even purebred Arabs because when you go back and you read some of the uh, travelogues that were written in the 19th century, and even further back there was a cartographer from uh, France who spent many years in the um, in the land of Israel examining, trying to locate all of the physical locations that were mentioned in the Bible, and he found many, many others and he mapped where all of these locations were, over 2,000. And he concluded not a single one had an Arab name. Now, there were some places like um, one place we go is called Banyas. And uh, that was, com- it's, that's, it's Arab because Arabs can't say P. So they have to use the, they say B's. So Banias originally was the location of the temple of the Greek god Pan, P A N, so that became B A N. So it's not uh, originally an Arab name; it's originally a Greek name, but so it's been transliterated into Arabic. But he concluded there were no places that had an original Arabic name on that, and furthermore, it's been documented by numerous writers that um, well mark twain was one there's a couple of others that were traveling through that area in the mid 19th century and said you would get, you would travel for days now they're not driving cars so their their travel was walking so you could travel for days and not see anybody and that there were no arabs there there was nobody there because the ottoman empire had had just done all of these different policies over the over the years to make it virtually uninhabitable. There were some Jews in Sfat. There were some Jews in Jerusalem. Sfat is spelled S-A-F-E-D. That's for the transcriber because they'll never figure it out otherwise. S-A-F-E-D. And that's sort of a, um, that is a town that has a history going back all the way to, to the time of Jesus. So, uh, uh, you go there you have the records of Jews who lived there Tiberius was a significant center for for uh Jewish scribe, scribes so there's a there's a heritage there and that's what Paul's talking about here is he can trace his and at the temple at the time the temple still existed then there that's where they kept the genealogical records so somebody could go check Paul out and they could go to the temple and they could trace his heritage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin so he says that he's of the stock of Israel which is the broad he's he's obviously a, an Israelite and then he talks about the fact that he uh, was of the tribe of Benjamin now it, we've studied judges and those of you who've studied judges with me know that Benjamin doesn't come off with you know looking really good and then they are the tribe of Saul and saul didn 't exactly um, do well, so what in the world might he be uh, focusing on here and it's, it goes back to who Benjamin actually was. Benjamin was the youngest son of jacob and and Rachel Rachel was the woman he loved his father in law tricked him into marrying uh, put a put a heavy veil over the sister Leah, and got him married off to. Uh, the older one first, and then Jacob married married Rachel because she was the love of his life, and so she died in childbirth after she gave birth to Benjamin, and so he was a a favored son of the twelve. The two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, uh, were the um, sons of Jacob and Rachel, and that was very important. And then Mordecai in the story of Esther was of the tribe of Benjamin. So there were very positive things about the tribe of Benjamin, and so he's identifying who he is. Uh, He is an authentic Israelite, tracing his heritage all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin. And then he concludes he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And this is a phrase that just emphasizes the fact that he is the purest of the pure. He has nothing uh, that physical that would uh, that would be counted against him he is has a strong strongest genealogy that anybody could possibly imagine and then he says, concerning the law, so this goes back to the torah, and the Torah is a word that means law, but it also means instruction and uh, so much of what is in Genesis to Deuteronomy is instruction on how the Jewish people are to live as a redeemed nation, as God's chosen people. So he is, says concerning the law, and now he tells us that he was a Pharisee. That it, it, so he's adhered to the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law. And some people get the idea that the, that the law was somehow bad. It wasn't. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law was good and holy. It's the misuse of the law that, made the, that caused the problem, and that's what these Judaizers are. So we're going to talk just a little bit about Saul of Tarsus, who that's his Hebrew name, Shaul, and then Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. So the first time we're introduced to Saul of Tarsus, he is a zealous um, uh, uh, defender of Pharisaical tradition, and we see him uh, as a young man standing on the edge of the crowd as Stephen is uh, uh, condemning the Jews for their uh, hypocrisy and their failure to trust in uh, Jesus as Messiah, and we're told in eight, chapter eight, verse one. Now Saul was consenting to his death, so he is um, he is going along with the murder of this innocent man, Stephen. So Saul was consenting to his death at the at that time. Then Luke writes, "A great persecution arose against the church." So there's a reaction that set in because of what Stephen had said in his. Uh, message in Acts chapter seven. So this persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now that's an important verse because the key verse for Acts is Acts one eight, and in Acts one eight, Jesus is giving his parting instruction uh, to the to the apostles, and he says, "You guys wait here in Jerusalem." until uh, the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will take the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, which is a region. Jerusalem's a city. Judea and and Samaria are the two regions just outside of Judea, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. That's the outline for the book of Acts that starts off in Jerusalem, then it expands as a result of this persecution to Judea and Samaria. Notice how you just follow the text, and it, 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 it explains it. Uh, there's, go to Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. They're staying in Jerusalem. Is that what God told them to do? No. They, they want to stay home. But that, so that's just a little hint that they're not doing quite what they were. And then we're told in 8 2, devout men, that's a, re- a reference to pious men, believers, probably they were Old Testament saints and got saved on the day of Pentecost. Because all of those Jews that are in the audience in Acts 2, it says, many devout men. So many of those that were there to hear Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, were already saved, they were Old Testament saints, and now they're going to hear that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he died on the cross for their sins. So a devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Later it says he had them killed. So he's a murderer. And he is, just hates Christians, and he hates uh, the whole idea of Jesus being the Messiah. Now, I put this map in here because uh, most Americans are, and many others are geographically challenged. And if you haven't been to Israel, then you, you can't really orient well. So down here, the very bottom, is Jerusalem. So if you were to follow this blue line here to where it crosses the, the, uh, uh, crosses the uh, sea, where the line is from the, the end of the land, then that's approximately where Tel Aviv is today. That, is at, that was where the seaport of Joppa was. So that's where um, Jonah left, and that's where uh, Paul came in a couple of times. So that's, that's uh, uh, Tel Aviv. Then you go north up here, and here's Damascus. Damascus is in Syria, so this line right about here from Tyre across, this is about the northern end of the um, of, of the pro, pro, me, promised land. This little blue spot here is a lake that's Hull, Lake Hullah, and that no longer exists. It's all farmland now, but that's just below the area here where Dan is located, and the city of Dan, ancient city of Dan. It was Laish originally, and it's mentioned at the time of Abraham when he, after he defeated the five kings. So you go up here, you go to Damascus, and then you go all the way up north to the, towards the northern end of Damascus is Antioch, Antioch of Syria. There's also an Antioch in Pisidia over in Turkey. So that's where the one of the earliest uh, Gentile churches were, was located. One of the early Gentile churches was located there in Antioch. And then over here is Tarsus, and that's Paul's hometown. So when Paul was, after he was born Mitzvah when he was 13, his father sent him to live with, with his um, aunt, I believe, or is it Paul's sister? Paul's sister, I believe down here in Jerusalem, and he, so he's going to go through pharisaical training in the school of Gamaliel, who's considered one of the greatest pharisaical uh, teachers, greatest schools, because that's how they were trained, and we'll st- study a little bit about them, but that's what he was doing, and uh, he's probably by this time in Acts in Acts, um, 7 and 8, he's probably at least 20. He could be even um, you know between 20 and 25. Now think about this, because this is probably within three years of the crucifixion. So if he's 20, let's go on the lowest end. If he's 20 and it's 36, how old was he in 33? He was 17. And so when Jesus started his ministry, that would have been about the time that Paul went to Jerusalem. And I've always believed that Paul heard Jesus, he knew Jesus, who Jesus was, he heard him teach, but he was one of those unsaved Pharisees that you read about, especially in the Gospel of John, that the chronology fits. He would have been there, he would have been in Jerusalem during all of that time. So now we read in Acts 9 that Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest it's very clear that the bible accuses Saul of murdering christians and so he goes to the high priest and asks for letters from the high priest letters to commission him and authenticate his mission to go to the synagogues of Damascus so here's here's Damascus down here where the red lines come together And it is somewhere in this area that Saul is going to be confronted with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. So he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, that's what they call Christianity until a little bit later on, they just called it the way, whether men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's going to be involved in arresting them, torturing them, beating them, who knows what? As he journey he came near Damascus. Suddenly, a light shone upon him, and he heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And notice his response. He says, "Who are you, Lord? Right away, he recognizes who Jesus is because I believe the word of God. When God speaks, people don't go, "I don't believe in you. You're just a figment of my imagination. God has a self-authenticating authority to his voice. And people don't say, well, who are you? They know that that's God. Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. These Christians are part of the body of Christ. You and I are all part of that same body of Christ. Those who attack us attack Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, It is hard for you to kick against the goads, that is, the the pricks of consciousness that he was already experiencing as he was persecuting these Christians. So Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And see, by using the word Lord indicates he's already recognized that that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that everything he's been doing has been against the truth. It's just blinding flash of the obvious, literally. Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard a voice. So this isn't some internal psychological guilt reaction that Paul is experiencing. It's objective. If you had had a recorder there, your little MP3 recorder, you could have recorded the sound of Jesus's voice. You couldn't have caught the words because they were, they were masked. But you could, you, they heard the noise, so they know that there's an objective voice speaking to Paul, but they can't understand what is being said. Um, so they, they heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. So he is, but he's blind. But they led him to the hand, uh, brought him to Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so that is that's his his salvation. Now he describes what's going on here in a couple of other passages in First Corinthians fifteen eight and nine. He says related to his salvation. Then last of all, he referring to Jesus was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Then we come to Galatians. Galatians 1, 13 through 16. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, For you've heard of my former conduct conduct in Judaism. He did not try to hide it. Now, there are two types of Judaism that we ought to distinguish when we're talking about the Scriptures. We have Pharisaical Judaism, and we have Biblical Judaism. I don't know of a better way to describe what is, what is the truth in the Old Testament. That's Biblical Judaism. Its focus is on the Jews, the temple worship, tabernacle, all of that. It says, "...for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism." How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. So he's not keeping it a secret as to who he was. And then in Galatians, he says, and, I, and see, the Galatians are facing the same problem that the uh, Philippians are facing. And that is these Judaizers who come, have come in uh, preaching a false gospel. And I advanced in Judaism between be, uh, beyond many of my contemporaries. Nobody was more zealous than Paul. Nobody was taking on the Christians as much as Paul was. He alone was going, if it was up to him, he would be the one to destroy every Christian. He would wipe Christianity off the face of the map. He was more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now what are the traditions of his fathers? What does that mean? Well, If you don't know Judaism, you don't know the history of Judaism, you'll never figure that out. You just think, well, that's just what they traditionally did. No, it isn't. What, according to Pharisaical thought that developed in the period after the Jews came back from from Babylon, so just to remind you of the history, in 722 B.C., The Assyrian Empire was expanding, and they militarily defeated the northern kingdom and scattered many of those Israelites all through the Assyrian kingdom. Now, they're often called the Ten Lost Tribes, but they're not lost. Number one, God doesn't lose anybody. And number two, that when they were, uh, before the Assyrians came, there were many believers in the northern kingdom who said it's time for me to go south? And they went down to Judea, and so all, representative many many representatives of all of the tribes survived, and the tribes survived because they went south to Judea. So there's no such thing as as lost lost tribes. So he's um, the traditions of the fathers were developed after that. So I mean that that's 722, 586. Jerusalem was destroyed with the third attack from Nebuchadnezzar, and the temple was destroyed. And so for the next 70 years, there's no Jewish presence. By that, I mean there's no sacrifice on on the Temple Mount. It has ceased until they return, and they, they return in 538 B.C. after Cyrus decrees that they should all return to their national homeland, so they come back, and as they're putting things together, they, rec- they come to recognize over the next hundred or so years that there was a basic problem and that they had succumbed to idolatry and they had disobeyed the, the law. So they decided that the thing that we need to do is come up. We've got these 613 commandments. We can't break those commandments, so we have to build a fence around the law to protect it. To protect us, so we're going to set up all of these uh, laws, and that if we don't break those, we'll never break the 613. So we're going to protect the 613 with these, and then later on, after the time of Christ, after by the end of the first century, they build a second fence. Now that first fence, they justified as an oral revelation from God that was given to Moses on the mountain, but it was not written down. So they believe that when Moses went to Mount Sinai, he received the written law, which is what we have in the Torah, in the five books of Moses. But he also gave an oral law. Well, there's no biblical evidence. There's no evidence in any of the Hebrew scriptures that we have and that both Jews and Christians believe are um, are, are part of the canon we, there's no evidence of any oral law. That was something that basically developed as a tradition. And so it's the obedience to that oral law that is what is referred to by the phrase, the tradition of the fathers. Okay, so you always go back. There's a segment section of the Mishnah that is called Pirkei pirke Avot. A vote is fathers. It's the tradition of the fathers. It's the teaching of the fathers, and um, and so that's often what fathers will teach their children. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. It's interesting to read. I had a Jewish man who just recently died that years ago gave me a copy, wanted me to read it, which I did. And of course, I'd read it years ago in seminary. I took a course on the Mishnah. Um, so that's what he's saying. He was more zealous for the traditions of the father for what that was that oral law was presumably written down and 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 uh, systematized and organized by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Judah Hanasi, Judah the prince in the early two, uh, 200s and that became known as the Mishnah So that's the source of the mission. So that's what this is talking about. He was zealous to protect the traditions of the fathers, the oral law. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him, proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now what he means by that is he didn't go talk to uh, he didn't go talk to the apostles. He went out into the uh, desert for a while outside of Damascus because he had to rethink his whole theology, his whole concept of God, his old con- everything he understood about the Old Testament had to be revised. In our passage, he says in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, this is a really important concept. The righteousness in the law. Now, in modern Judaism, the, uh, well, in biblical Judaism, the word for righteousness is tzedakah, tzedekah, T-Z-E-D-E-K-A-H, tzedekah. Now, that word has come to mean in modern rabbinical Judaism, good works, good deeds. And they believe that that's how they get to heaven, is through the good works, through the tzedekah that they perform. So I've recently written a tract. Now, most Gentiles go, well, why are you writing it that way? I've had three people ask me that. And the reason is, I wrote it this way, there's a question that is asked by Job. How can a man be righteous before God? How can a man be righteous before God? That's a key question that, that should be answered. How can we have righteousness? Well, the answer of uh, modern Judaism is through through works, through your works of righteousness, following the traditions of the fathers. And what, what, but what does the Old Testament say? So I've developed this. How did how did anybody get righteousness in the Old Testament? Well, it starts with Abraham, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. That is the key. And then you just trace through the negatives that the Old Testament says about our righteousness, like Isaiah 64, 6, all our works of tzedakah are filthy rags. And that's written by a prophet, not by a, cr- a criminal. And so he's saying everything that we've done is just filthy rags. It's, it's garbage in the sight of God. We can only have get, get credit with God if, we, if he gives us his righteousness. So that's what the contrast is going to be. And that I introduce that because this is a major theme in the next part of the this um, of Philippians chapter three. He's going to give one of the best explanations of justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. From the <coughs> Dr- uh, Greek word decai decaiao which is translated to be declared righteous, not made righteous. But we'll get into all of those issues as we go through this. And what Paul is contrasting here is the righteousness which is in the law. He was blameless, but he's going to say it's not enough. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, he goes through, he talks about the fact that he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So what exactly does that mean? And as I was thinking about going through this and explaining who the Pharisees are, I recognized that that I was going to use terms and use vocabulary that was unfamiliar to you, and you would shake your heads like you knew what I was talking about because you've heard these words before, but you don't know anything about it. So we're going to talk about this. In... Arnold Fruchtenbaum's first volume, Yeshua, the Life of the Jewish Messiah. He writes, the Judaism of first century Israel was not uniform. See, when we talk about Jewish community, it is, it's is—it's just like the Gentile community. I mean, you have every stripe. You have every view, every position. It covers the whole gamut of it- ideology. I was surprised when I was, um, went went into the uh, a philosophy graduate program at the University of St. Thomas, which is a ca- conservative Catholic school here, or it was back then. And in their philosophy department was very conservative, and I would rather study philosophy at a conservative school that believed in God than study philosophy at Rice that was godless. So I went there, and I was surprised at the breadth of difference in Roman Catholics, you know, often we think, well, they're just here, but they're not. I mean, you have as bit, large a range of of theology under the umbrella of the Pope as you do in Christianity. You've got you've got liberals, you've got charismatics, you've got uh, hyper orthodox who still want the mass said uh, in Latin. You've got every kind of view. In between, and you have evangelical priests that understand the basics of the gospel and actually describe it. And so, same things true about Judaism. And so, whenever you are in a situation where you're going to be giving the gospel or explaining the gospel to uh, someone Jewish, you need to understand some things about them and their understanding of their view of Judaism before you ever open your mouth to try to tell them about Jesus. Because you can, you have to know the background so that you can understand where they're coming from. Because if they're orthodox, they're going to have a very high view of the authority of Scripture. In fact, I've had orthodox rabbis tell me that they have more in common with evangelical Christians like me than they do do with, with 90% of the other Jews. So you have to understand the person that you're talking about. What are, they, what are they coming from? Are they coming from a Reform background? Are they coming from an orthodox background? Are they coming from a conservative position, conservative Judaism, or reconstructionist Judaism, or just a pure secular pagan Jew like any secular pagan Gentile? What are they? and ask a lot of questions, not like a machine gun, but just say, well, really, I, I don't know that much about Judaism, so where, uh, what, you, how did you grow up? What did your parents teach you? What kind of a synagogue uh, do you go to? And, and the way to phrase that, to be knowledgeable, is, is where are you, what synagogue are you associated with? If you ask it the way they talk about it, it suddenly they think, well, you know, you know something. And that's what happened to me. I talked about, mentioned that Sunday morning. I was at this birthday party last Saturday night, and this guy sitting across from me, uh, because I had said some things about Hebrew and some other things, so he thought I was Jewish. And he said, so who do you associate with? And I, I had not heard that phrase before. And so I said, excuse me? He said, "Uh, what synagogue do you associate with? I said, oh, no, I'm pastor of West Houston Bible Church. (laughs) I just loved the initial look on his face when I said that. And then he was like, oh, we just love you. You support Israel better than most Jews do. So anyway, um, where was I over here? So what became normative Judaism, this is quoting Arnold Fruchtenbaum, the Judaism of first century Israel was not uniform. It isn't uniform today. And so other scholars prefer the term Judaisms. What became normative Judaism developed only after A.D. uh, AD 70. Uh, Through Pharisaic Judaism, those pharisaic judaism was dominant prior to that period since it had the support of the general population in israel they didn't necessarily believe it but they they felt like if anybody's close to what god has revealed to us it would be the pharisees not the sadducees not the herodians not the essenes it would be the be the pharisees in fact i have a, a professor uh, that i would studied mishnah under a dallas seminary and have studied a lot under him over the years and he says, "The Pharisees were the good guys. the Sadducees were the bad guys, the Pharisees were the conservatives the the Sadducees were the were the liberals, and the Pharisees were probably as close as anybody could get to the truth at that time, and that's why Jesus was so angry with them and and held them to such a not angry it 's not the right word." held them to such a higher standard, he had greater expectations of them because they believed that the Torah actually came from God and they believed in the entire uh, Old Testament canon, the prophets as well, whereas the Sadducees only believed in the, in the, um, in the, in the Torah in the first five books. So Arnold goes on to say, the essence of Pharisaic theology will be discussed later in this chapter. The purpose here is to enumerate the different segments in Jewish society during that gospel period. And then he quotes from Flavius Josephus. Um, I was even asked at this birthday party, I was talking about something, brought up Josephus. And, well, who's that? Well, what's his Hebrew name? Well, his Hebrew name is Yosef bin Metathayahu. um, But he was known as Flavius Josephus because when he was a general in the Jewish army in Galilee, and they were defeated, and um, so when he became, uh, 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 um, I'm drawing a blank, not Vesuvius, Um, Vespasian, the uh, general uh, was going to go, uh, captured him, Uh, Vespasian, he had said some nice things about Vespasian that had been said to him, and so Vespasian basically took him as his slave, and he became uh, associated with the Flavians. The Vespasius and Titus were from the Flavian uh, family in, in Rome. So he became known as Flavius Josephus. So uh, he says at this time there were three sects, among the Jews, who had different opinions concerning human actions. The one was called the sect of the Pharisees, another the sect of the Sadducees, and the other the sect of the Essenes. And so there's these three groups. The Essenes are not mentioned in scriptures. So the Pharisees basically uh, were in Judea. They thought Judea, because Jerusalem was there, if you're going to be pious and holy, you've got to be there. And if you're from Galilee, well, you're not. And so um, a- a- Alfred Adersheim, who was a uh, Jewish, Orthodox Jewish scholar who converted, not converted, that's a, not a good word to use when you're talking to Jews, who recognized that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah wrote a book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah back in the mid-19th century, and he says, The Jews of Judea disdained Galilee. Galileans were considered materialistic and ignorant in spiritual matters. If one was only interested in getting rich, then you should go to north, go to Galilee. Anyone interested in obtaining divine spiritual wisdom should go south. Uh, because that was where the rabbinic schools and the rabbinic academies were located. In John seven, when Nicodemus tried to make a defense on behalf of Yeshua, the other Pharisees blurted out mistakenly, Search and see that out of Galilee arises no prophet. That's in John seven fifty two. But they were ignoring the fact that Hosea, Jonah, and Elisha and Elijah all came out of the north. So this was a uh, 1,500 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. This was the way uh, these three groups were characterized in, by uh, medieval uh, artists, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. So the origin of the Pharisaical movement is much disputed even today. Uh, generally, they believe it is it, that they originated following the Maccabean Revolt to protect Jewish orthodoxy against the paganism of the Antiochians. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I want a dissertation from people. Who are the Maccabees? What's the Hasmone, Hasmonean Kingdom? And who are the Antiochians, right? Oh, I've heard those words, but I don't have a clue. Okay, so we have to figure it out. The name for Pharisees comes from the Aramaic word parash, which means to separate, divide, or distinguish. But its significance and beyond that, little is known uh, with any certainty. So we're going to briefly go over these terms. Who are the Maccabees? Maccabees? It's not a soccer team. Even though I have a Maccabee soccer team shirt, it's not a soccer team. Who are the what are the Hasmoneans? And one thing about understanding who the Maccabees are is that today in Israel they're calling the 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 guys in the IDF all the IDF soldiers, not just guys but girls. They're the new Maccabees. That's how they pronounce it. They're the new Maccabees because they are fighting against Hamas. They are doing what the Maccabees did against the Syrians uh, back back in the uh, 2nd century B.C. So who are the Maccabees? Who are the Hasmoneans? So the period of the Hasmonean kingdom was from 167 uh, to 63 B.C. 63 B.C., what happens? The Romans come in and they take over. So that's the end of the Hasmonean uh, uh, kingdom. So this is a map of of the extent of the Greek empire under Alexander. When Alexander dies as a young man in his early 30s, then it basically gets divided up among four of his generals. Now that's what I've always been taught and that's what you've always heard because that's a nice simple way to grasp it. Actually there was about uh, 15 or 20 years of war between these four generals before they finally got, each guy ended up with their territory. So you had the uh, uh, kind of this purple area up here went to uh, Lysimachus, and then Egypt, the red area down here went to the Ptolemies. The most famous Ptolemy is who? Cleopatra. Cleopatra was a Ptolemy. That means she was a Greek, but we live in a world today that has glorified black Africanism, and so I've even been in uh, pastors' offices where Daniel is black. No, Daniel wasn't black, he was a Middle Eastern Jew, he wasn't white like the Italians painted him in, in Rome in the Middle Ages either, and uh, Cleopatra was not, black. she was a Greek, she was a European, and so she was the last of the Ptolemy line. Anyway, so we have then, then Seleucus ends up with basically the green area. And so those are the ones we're really concerned about is this area right here because the Seleucids had the north, Syria. Uh, Ptolemies had the south in Egypt. And this area in the middle was where Judah was. And and guess what happens? Well, there's a tug of war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids all through this period. And by the time you get to about uh, 170 or a little before that, that that the the land of Israel is under the domain of the um, of the Seleucids, and so I'm going to skip ahead. I put the timeline in the wrong place. Here we go. So here's a timeline. In 174 BC, you have uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He's the guy who sacrifices a pig, the original abomination of desolation on the altar at, um, in Jerusalem, in the temple, the first abomination of desolation. He is going to try to impose Greek culture on all of the Jews, and he makes it a capital crime to worship anything related to the Mosaic law or Judaism. If any male babies get circumcised, that baby gets executed, and the parents get executed, and the grandparents get executed. So it's It's a horrific thing. Um, all forms of Yahweh worship are outlied, sacri- outlawed. sacrifice of the temple are outlawed. in possession of the Hebrew scriptures is a capital crime. Observing the Sabbath, circumcision, all of those become punishable by death. And so this, but the assimilation to the Greek culture became known as Hellenism. We get to when we get into Acts uh, six and the problem with their their complaint among the Hellenistic Jews that they were not being receiving the distribution of as much of the gifts to the Hellenistic widows, so he's going to impose Hellenism uh, on the on the uh, on, on the Jews and try to force them to submit. And what happens is, just a few years later in one sixty seven one of his uh, military guys takes a group to a town called Modin. I'll show you on the map in a minute. And he's going to force the priest in Modin to sacrifice a pig on the altar. And the priest just happens to be this guy named Mattathias. And Mattathias says, Mm-mm, I'm not going to do it. But there's a Uh, A guy who's assimilated, a Hellenistic Jew, standing there going, I will, I will. And he comes up. And so Mattathias takes out his sword, kills him, kills the head of the Syrian troop, and the um, Maccabean revolt begins. So let's go back. Oops, I went the wrong way. Let's go back to some map slides. So here we go. So here's Modine right here. Here's Jerusalem down here. So that's probably about 20 miles away. And what happens is that after this, um, Mattathias takes his sons, and they uh, start gathering uh, volunteers around them, and they head over here to Gophna, where they're basically protected by just the rugged terrain uh, outside of Gophna. For those who've been in Israel, this is just about five miles up from uh, Bethel. And then there's going to be a general Apollonius uh, who is sent down from the north, and he comes down to Livona and uh, Judah Maccabees. Uh, Maccabee means the hammer. And so Judah Maccabees is going to meet him and end up killing him in, in, in the battle as well. And so that's the end of uh, Apollonius. Then another Syrian force comes from over here, from the from the northwest, comes down through Aphek and comes down here by Lydda, and around. And then uh, they're go, they're chasing uh, Judah the Hammer, and he gets away and circles back to uh, to ambush them at the upper Beth. Horan, and uh, they're going to be pretty much wiped out. Then there's another commander that comes down from the the north uh, over here, and he's got a couple of other top commanders, Nicanor, Ptolemy, and Gorgias. He comes back on the story in a minute, and um, that army's going to be defeated, They come down to Emmaus right here. Remember, Jesus on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke is talking to the disciples. Well, they come down to Emmaus, and when they get down to Emmaus, Gorgias is going to take 5,000 soldiers and 100 cavalry uh, to go after uh, Judah Maccabees. But uh, Maccabees uh, heard of that plan and circled back and hit them from the rear at Emmaus and uh, uh, defeated them there. And so they are able then to go to Jerusalem and to take Jerusalem, regain the temple, and there they lit lit the lamps in the temple for the Feast of Hanukkah. So that's the background. Now you know who the Maccabees are, you know what the Hasmonean, and the Hasmonean kingdom is going to last until 63. So here's a broad map, you can't read the uh, index up here, but that's that's how that's the area that they were able to eventually control over about a hundred years. So in this map, we see that um, uh, Judea is taken over and controlled. That's south off this map uh, at the beginning of the Maccabean revolt, and then some other territories are added by Jonathan. But uh, it's not till about a hundred A.D. that Alexander Janius is going to get this. Territory along the coast, which is where uh, Caesarea Maritima is, and then the area across uh, across the uh, Jordan early on they take which makes sense because they're fighting uh, fighting in this area they take over uh, the area that is uh, south of Jerusalem. they take Judea and then actually the green area Judea, and then uh, over the next uh, uh, twenty years under Jonathan they 're going to take the orange areas here and Perea across the Jordan and this area around Ekron um, Ekron is where near where uh, David fought Goliath generally in that area, uh, but they they just they 're just going to grow, and so the revolt ends in one hundred and fifty two and then John Hyrcanus is appointed high priest because that was part of the problem was the high priest would become priesthood had become corrupt. And so he's a descendant of, of Mattathias. He's appointed high priest. And um, that's when the Hasmonean kingdom becomes independent. But the other thing that's important, that's the first time we have mention of in any ancient literature of the Pharisees. But they're a significant, sort of significant political party, along with the Sadducees by then. So we don't know what happened before that. So this is what Paul's talking about when he says concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. It's a superficial righteousness. So we'll come back next time and start getting into the theology here. But we understand that there's this uh, coming out of the Babylonian captivity when they come back, either then or after the beginning of the uh, Hasmonean uh, kingdom, There's a development of a group that is concerned about purifying the temple, purifying uh, the religious system because of all this assimilation that's taken place. And they are called Hasidim. They are not related to the modern Hasidics. Same word, though. H, the C-H, the Hebrew Chet, plus the Samic, plus the Dalit. Chesed, that's the root. Those who are loyal to the covenant, that's the root idea in God's loyal, faithful love. He's loyal and faithful to the covenant. So they are called the pious ones, and that group is probably the group that splits into Sadducees and Pharisees. And uh, that's just a one of probably several possibilities that are out there. So now you know what Paul is claiming by all of these things. He is claiming there's, there's nobody that has a better resume than Paul. He has graduated at the head of his class in every category, and if anybody could get, could get into heaven by works, it would be the Apostle Paul. And he says, no, works are just nothing more than manure. You can't get there on your own righteousness. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study this tonight and to come to a little better understanding of backgrounds in Judaism, backgrounds to the New Testament, backgrounds to Paul, that we may come to a greater appreciation of these things when we read about them in the future, and always to be reminded of your grace, that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy you saved us. And Father, we're so grateful for that, that it's just based on grace and simple belief or trust in Jesus, the Messiah. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.